Have you been zombified by your own paranoia? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I am your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. I am your co-host, Dave Lindbergh-Kenrick, Media Outreach Program Manager at ASU and brain enthusiast. Yeah, brains. We're really, really into brains. So what are we talking about today? Well, we are talking about paranoia, what paranoia is fundamentally, and how it can shape us, so. and if it's functional, ah. or if it's always just crazy. And what is your favorite part of today's? My favorite part of today's podcast is this idea that maybe being paranoid is not always crazy. Like sometimes people really are talking about you behind your back. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so our brains are maybe attuned to that. Cool. Yeah. So um, I think you're going to love the episode, honestly. All right. Yeah. So we're talking with Nicola Rayani, who is in the psychology department at University College London. And she's pretty amazing because she has studied not just humans, but all sorts of other organisms and how they interact with each other socially. And so she has a really broad perspective on behavior and cognition. Cool. Yeah. Sounds great. All right. So um, let's hear from this week's fresh brain, Nicola Rayani. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. But something else is taking over me. Nicola, welcome to Zombified. Thank you. Would you start by um, introducing yourself in your own words? Sure. Uh, so I am a professor of uh, evolution and behavior at University College London. I'm in the psychology department now, but um, I don't really so much identify as being a psychologist. My background is more in evolutionary biology. Um, and I'm interested in the evolution of social behavior generally. So why individuals ever uh, work together to achieve collective outcomes, how they do that, what kinds of impediments there are to achieving that. Um, and yeah, so I'm interested in that question broadly in many species, including humans. What other species have you So worked I've worked on a few, which are a bit of a motley crew of species. So um, I did my PhD on a species of bird called the pied babbler, which is um, a social bird that lives in very tight-knit family groups in the Kalahari Desert. So they're a bit, uh, they're a bit like meerkats, but birds. They, so they have a similar breeding system to meerkats, Interesting. which is that um, basically just one male and one female in the group uh -huh. breed um, to the exclusion of all other group members. And the, the, the job of the other group members is to basically help the breeding pair to raise young. 
So obviously in a system like that, there are kind of disagreements that can arise over mm -hmm. who's breeding and who's helping and how much help ought to be done and things like this. And so uh, I was, my PhD was basically focusing on how babblers resolve those conflicts that inevitably arise in mm -hmm. a system where reproduction is so unfairly distributed among yeah. the group. So evolution and behavior has kind of been your yeah. interest all along and you've mm -hmm. studied lots of different... Yeah, so the other species yeah. I've worked on have been uh, mole rats very briefly, um, cleaner fish, uh, apostle birds in Australia, um, and humans. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, a few. Yeah, well, and we're sitting here in your in your garden, hence yeah. the... With the planes. The planes yeah. and the birds and other flying mm. creatures around, which it's a lovely day. And, Thank you for having me. So I'm staying with you, which is awesome, mm -hmm. and had a chance to meet your, your lab yesterday. Did I, did I meet all of your lab? No, so yeah. you, met, um, you met Gabriel, who is my PhD student working on empathy and how, how and why we feel empathy for other people. Yeah. Um, but you didn't meet Anna, who is another PhD student working in my lab, who is focusing on psychosis and understanding psychosis as a disorder of the social brain. Excellent. So, yeah. And we were going to talk about some of that stuff today, right? So yep. paranoia and how people see the world mm -hmm. and how that kind of ties into our idea of zombification. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So in, in your mind, how does paranoia sort of relate to this issue of like, you know, f feeling that other people might be controlling or in control or you're not in control of your behavior? Is there is there a connection there that you see? So I think, yeah, like loosely there is a connection. I mean, it probably helps to kind of take a step back and think about what is, what do, when we say paranoia, what do we really mean by yeah. it? And uh, is it a binary trait, like you're paranoid and I'm not, or is it something which exists more on a spectrum of severity? And are, in you, fact, are you saying I'm paranoid? <laughs> uh, no, well... Um, You're going to reserve yeah. judgment. So. No, so basically what we um, what we know about paranoia is that it's, it isn't a binary thing. It is something which exists on a spectrum of severity yeah. and which you can detect in the general population. Um, you know, just people walking around, if you uh, administer them a standard questionnaire about paranoid thoughts that they might have had over the last month or so, what you'll tend to find is that um, most people are basically not at all So what counts paranoid. as a paranoid thought? Yeah, that's yeah. actually a good question. So yeah, before we jump into who, where, where the people fall on that spectrum. Uh, basically, th there's a sort of colloquial assumption, I think, that paranoia implies that you are have a mistaken belief that people are out to get you, right? And um, the but word, you're saying people really are out to get you. Well, no, I think I think the emphasis on the people being mistaken is misguided because I think sometimes people can be can have a heightened perception that people are out to get them, but that can actually be true for them in the world that they live in, right? Hmm. So I don't think it's that helpful to think of paranoia as being um, mistaken per se. But I think I think it's better to characterize it in terms of just an exaggerated tendency to think that other people intend you harm. Hmm. So, sorry. Go so, on. would it be like if? So, you would say it's not mistaken if, like, there really is someone who has bad intentions towards you, 
but maybe you're over perceiving how much harm they would do to you yeah, or something, something like yeah. that yeah so or even over perceiving i think has the connotation of it being mistaken i think it's just an exaggerated perception of okay. threat from other people um, so strictly speaking like if if you go to a clinical psychology textbook they will say that paranoia is the belief that harm will happen and that somebody intends that somebody intends that harm to happen to you okay, okay? so that's quite a broad kind of definition um, when you actually want to start breaking it down and measuring what what kinds of paranoid thoughts do people have um, typically you can sort of group them into ideas about social reference which basically means um, concerns about other people's what other people are thinking or talk or talking about you so yeah. concern, concerns about your how people in your social world are maybe perceiving you or talking about you to okay. other people so that's one that's part of the paranoid that would be part of a paranoid mindset and then the other sort of more severe and of the paranoid spectrum is when people start to experience frank delusions that um which can often be quite um bizarre in nature and sort like of what? implausible uh so things like um believing that uh, some powerful organization have done something to you like for example mm -hmm. have turned all of your bones to steam or are monitoring you through through surveillance through items in your household or you know there's lots of but that actually is happening that's why i think it's not helpful to be to tell people they're mistaken if they're paranoid and actually it's not helpful I mean, I'm not a clinician, but I work with um, Vaughan Bell, who is a clinician. And one of the things that he ha has said to me in the past that really stuck with me is that it's really unhelpful as a clinician if you have a patient, a, a patient with psychosis who ha is experiencing paranoid symptoms and delusional symptoms. It is really unhelpful to try to correct those beliefs because one of the other defining feature of a delusional belief is that it is held with it is fiercely held right so mm -hmm. it's you cannot be convinced otherwise of the that your belief is you know wrong or maybe misguided or something and so i think in terms of a definition it isn't helpful necessarily to, to classify these paranoia as being the fact that you're mistaken about people's intent to harm you and even like apparently even in clinical settings it isn't very helpful to emphasize the mistaken nature of those beliefs either yeah so, so you focus on the kind of exaggerated like you're you're defining it in terms of exaggeration as opposed yeah, to mistake yeah we're basically yeah. Our, our view is that um our view is that paranoia is basically part of a normal evolved human psychology it's put it's part of the brain that we all have can be prone in some situations to attributing harmful intent to other people and that's probably quite an important thing to be able to do if you are a social species like we are that lives in quite complex groups where maybe not everybody all of the time is necessarily having your best interests at heart mm -hmm. right and where so we we think that a, a, a brain that has the ability to try to detect when other individuals might not might be working against you rather than uh, with you or might be trying to maybe harm you rather than help you a brain that is able to detect those 
those uh, those possibilities and to make those inferences is probably something that was quite heavily selected for over the course of um, human evolution. Mm. So, so if people really are out to get you sometimes, like yeah. they might have been in our evolutionary history, or yeah. like they likely were, I mean, because we know that there was warfare, we know that there was conflict within groups, yeah. like all of those things have been going on since time immemorial. Mm. And so if that is happening, then you're saying it makes sense to have a brain that is sensitive to signals in the environment and yeah. signals from other people that might give you information that, well, yeah, somebody is out to get you. So yeah. then you can be more careful. Mm -hmm. You can maybe make it less likely that you'll get harmed or, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly, yeah, that's basically the premise of the work that we've been doing is to say paranoia should, the capacity for paranoia by which we mean the tendency to attribute harmful intent to other people should be something that is very responsive and labile um, and, and basically can be moved up and down even in the same individual in response to the kind of situation that they find themselves in, right? Mm. So uh, one, pr the, one of the predictions of the work that, you know, an overarching prediction, if you like, of the work that we've been doing is that paranoia, sh you shouldn't just have a fixed level of paranoia in all interactions that you're in. Individuals should be responsive to the kind of interaction they're in and they should be more likely to uh, attribute harmful intent, even in very ambiguous situations where they really can't know very much about the intentions of the other person at all. They should be more likely to attribute harmful intent in a situation that uh, is objectively more threatening than uh than a than a more neutral like situation. for example for example um what so one of the things we thought would be would trigger paranoid thinking if you like would be interacting with um an out group so somebody who doesn't share your worldview or is in some way not uh not perceived to be an ally so one of the ways we did that was um to have people interact with political in group like we said we asked them if they are Democrat or uh, to where, where they fall on a spectrum of liberal versus conservative. Okay. Uh, and then we tell them that they're either interacting with somebody who is also politically like-minded or who is politically counter-affiliated to mm -hmm. them. And our expectation is that if you identify as being strongly conservative, for example, and then you get told that you're now playing this uh, social interaction game with someone who is very liberal, you should perceive that as more threatening uh, than playing with somebody who you think is similar to you. And you should be then more likely to think that that person has harmful intentions towards you, even when their intentions are actually very ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Is this a prediction or is this something that you've tested? We've actually already? tested that. We've tested that in multiple different ways and using multiple different um, experimental manipulations of social threat. So we've done one where we use this in-group, out-group uh, manipulation that I mentioned. We've manipulated social threat by telling, by having people tell us where they see themselves on a, on a ladder with the bottom rung being the very bottom of society and the top rung being the very top. And then we tell them that um, they are now interacting with somebody either higher up the social ladder than them or lower down the social ladder. And our expectation again is that if you it gets told you're interacting with somebody higher up the food chain than you, you, that should be perceived as more threatening than when you feel like you're above 
on the ladder oh. than them. So we've, in, in all these studies, we've found basically more mm-hmm. or less the same effects. So we've manipulated social threat in, with this in-group, out-group. We've manipulated it with social status. And we've manipulated it by having people play social tasks against a pair of opponents, but where they're told that the pair of opponents is in a team, they're a united, cohesive team versus they're just playing against a pair of opponents who are not don't have any shared goals or shared aims. And again, the prediction here is that if you believe that you're playing against a cohesive team of opponents as opposed to a non-cohesive pair, you should experience that as being a more threatening, more socially threatening situation. And basically what we find across all those kinds of um, experimental settings is that when you have people play... Uh, a game where that where their partner's intentions really are ambiguous, they attribute more harmful intent um, when they are exposed to social threat. So basically, we we can we can push people's paranoid thinking up and down in the lab. We can make people more prone to paranoid thinking, or we can make them less prone to paranoid thinking with a very simple experimental manipulation. Um, and that is a, a prediction of of this hypothesis that paranoia is part of a psychology that mm. is geared towards you know, monitoring the social environment yeah. and detecting social threats in it. So if you're interacting with someone who's in an outgroup or someone who you think has power over you, then yeah. your paranoia system is like more active. Yeah, so it yeah. might help if I describe the task actually, because um, so basically the task that we use is a game um, which is quite common in behavioral economics called the dictator game. And it's quite a simple task. So basically in the dictator game, in the classic dictator game, there's two players. One of them is given some money and they can choose whether to give any to their partner or keep it for themselves. So you give me I give you $10 and and I say, do you want to give five? I give you two choices, right? So I say, here's your $10. If you want, you can give five to Nicola and keep five for you. Or if you want, you can actually just keep everything for you and give nothing to Nicola, right? So what we're actually interested in here is not actually what the dictators are doing in this case, but we're interested in how people interpret the behavior of the dictator that they're with. So if you think, if you put yourself in the shoes of me for a moment and let's say you Athena have been selfish and decided to give me nothing and keep all the ten dollars for yourself Mm -hmm. I might make I might basically draw one of many inferences about why you did that right the two that we are most interested in that we tried to disambiguate between is um, is firstly do I just assume that you're just greedy and self-interested and you want the money for yourself and that's kind of arguably the most parsimonious thing to to uh, infer from from that kind of behavior or if I also have to decide whether you kept all the money because you didn't want me to have any because mm-hmm. you were motivated by a yes. kind of harmful intent interesting uh, how much do I make those kinds of attributions and what we find is that in that game in that in that dictator game where people are asked to make those attributions of either self-interest or harmful intent to their partner we find that people are more likely to attribute harmful intent to a partner when they experience social threat of the Mm -hmm. kind that uh, I described. Yeah. So in this sort of way of thinking about paranoia or the sort of spectrum of paranoia, it's actually an adaptive thing that an individual is able to do. 
I don't think we're in a position to say whether it's adaptive because we haven't measured that. But we're, I suppose we're testing a hypothesis that comes from a, as if it, we're, our hypothesis is, is saying, if this is adaptive, we expect to see this. And so yeah. we're testing a prediction of a hypothesis that presumes it is adaptive, but whether it really is, I think you would really need to do, uh, you would need to do different studies. Mm-hmm. But that, I think, so... But what you found so far is consistent. It's consistent with, with the idea. idea that it could be adaptive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's not. I don't think it's. I think it would be a stretch to say that we've shown that. Mm-hmm. Do you think it misfires or gets dysregulated yeah, in so, extreme situations? So that. So yeah, yeah. So basically, the interesting other question, in a way, is yeah. when we ha- when you have people who are already quite paranoid in their daily lives play a game like the one that I described. How did they respond to? you know, a neutral versus a socially threatening situation, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're somebody who, um, when we administer a kind of paranoia questionnaire to you that comes, that scores very highly on this questionnaire and says, yes, I frequently think people are talking about me and I frequently thought people were looking at me because they wanted to harm me and I frequently thought that people had it in for me and, you know, answers give answers yes to a lot of the questions that denote a paranoid kind of thinking style how when those people play our game which we do you can recruit those people from the general population it is not it is you can recruit the full spectrum of severity from the general population all the way from you're not at all paranoid to you would be you are over what would be classed as a clinical threshold for experiencing paranoid thoughts so when you recruit so if you administer that same game to people who are who are really paranoid our expectation a priori was that those people would be would would overreact to social threat right Mm -hmm. so we expected to see that uh they would their responses their tendency to attribute harmful intent in uh in a socially threatening situation would kind of be off the scale right okay and what we found actually is really not that at all what we found is that um, being um, having a higher level of paranoia generally means that you start from you have a higher uh, baseline level of tendency to attribute harmful intent. Even in a neutral situation, your threshold is is raised compared to the threshold of somebody who is not that paranoid. Okay, so in a neutral situation, you experience that as more threatening than somebody who is not so paranoid but when you are exposed to social threat and experimentally uh-huh. you scale up your response in exactly the same way as the people who were not as paranoid so so, so if you're really if you're you know quote unquote really paranoid it's not that you're off the scale for responding to Right, it's more that in the ambiguous situation. Yeah, exactly. More yeah, that's exactly what it is. So basically, it's just that you're starting from a different baseline, and one, and then your you're like threshold. Your threshold. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. Is so lower, basically, so, in a, ne- yeah. a neutral situation, you're already exp- you're already saying this person had harmful intent uh-huh. towards me, and then from that point, you just scale up in the same way that other people scale up. But you mm-hmm. you know you end up at a higher level ultimately, but you're not your responses are not dysregulated in the way that we actually a priori thought they would be interesting Hmm. so does it have to be harmful intent because like earlier you mentioned this idea right that you know well there you know items in your household that are collecting information about you Mm. and we know that actually (laughs) is happening now whether there's harmful intent there 
or not is another question. But I mean, is even the idea that there are things gathering information about you, does that count as I think, paranoia? Yeah, so um, str strictly speaking, par that with paranoia, there is an assumption of that there's a malicious intent uh -huh. somewhere. Um, what if you're like, you know, agnostic about the intent, but uh, you think that there are entities it, gathering information about you? Um, it's hard. I don't know. Yeah. It's quite... I, you can just speculate yeah, too. I, like, what do you think? I mean, I think <laughs> I'm finding it hard to think of a situation where people might be worried about devices gathering information on them, but but also... But at the same time, thinking that it wasn't nefarious. So, like, I, for, I guess, like, for most people who would be worried about devices gathering information on them, they might also think that this might be used. Uh, this could have potentially be used against them mm -hmm. at some point, and that's why they're worried about yeah. it. Um, I think. If, I think if you're genuine, if you basically just genuinely like, oh, Alexa knows everything about me, but basically I don't care. I wouldn't class that as paranoia. Yeah. That isn't what. That isn't. Mm -hmm. That doesn't speak to the definition of paranoia. Yeah. Paranoia really is like, I think harm is going to happen to me, and somebody intends that harm to happen. Mm -hmm. So that is really a central part of the definition of what it means to be paranoid. Mm -hmm. But what if it's like you know. Alexa or Amazon, you know, they know everything about me. And so they know how to capture my attention better. And I don't know what the consequences of that are for my yeah, well-being. Yeah, I mean, so you're sort of nudging into sort of what I would call conspiracy theorizing uh -huh. kind of territory. Yeah. And like, we know the tendency to um, believe in conspiracy theories is something which overlaps quite heavily with a proneness to paranoid thinking. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know... Th those things do overlap. There is shared territory between conspiracy thinking and paranoid thinking. And we know also know that lots of the social th threats that I described that seem to prompt paranoid thinking in, uh, you know, just anyone you test, basically, uh -huh. are also things that prompt conspiracy thinking. So typically, conspiracy conspiracy thinking is elevated when you perceive yourself to be in a position of weakness, but you perceive that there's a group of coordinated hmm. actors who have high power and probably nefarious aims that, uh -huh. that that have a way to do something you know bad that could affect you i think one of the key differences between conspiracy thinking generally and paranoia really like where they start to come apart is that conspiracy theorists might believe that powerful agents have malevolent intentions but they don't the the perception of of who's going to get harmed or who's who's the target of that malevolent intention is not necessarily you yeah so what's the relationship between conspiracy thinking and um paranoia and also the idea of like you know are we, are we actually being controlled by things you know so like we kind of pull it into the theme of the show about zombification. Yeah, I mean, it's actually quite interesting. So um, conspiracy thinking overlaps quite heavily with proneness to paranoid thinking. It has several of those structural features in common with paranoid thinking in that um, conspiracy thinking can be, is often more common in situations where you think that you are powerless and that there is a more powerful group of actors who have nefarious intentions. Um, but one of the points of departure between 
conspiracy thinking and paranoid thinking is that um, for conspiracy thinking, uh, although you might think people have bad intentions and have the power to execute those bad intentions, people don't often think that those um, those bad things are going to be directed personally at them. Okay, so they don't think that they are the target of this cons this organized conspiracy. Right. Um, so, for example, if you don't believe that vaccines are safe, you might believe that there's a cover up and that you know there's some kind of secret data that really vaccines cause different disorders or are bad for you but you don't believe that you are they're doing that specifically to harm you or your child you just believe that there is some kind of conspiracy mm. going on so so is it that you believe that there's some individuals maybe who are doing something to benefit themselves as opposed to like they're doing something to harm you yeah or at least that they you, you believe that there are agents with bad intentions but those you're not necessarily the target of those bad intentions personally mm. right you might be part of a group that might be affected by them but okay. you're not being targeted um where paranoia starts to sort of differentiate itself from conspiracy thinking is that you you will be more likely to believe that there is a, a group of actors that have malicious intentions and that you are the target of those malicious intentions. That okay, so, and often it's actually quite interesting with paranoia that um, the, the tendency to have paranoid thinking is not just a general, oh, everyone's out to get me. Okay, so often like paranoid concerns are really specific about who exactly is it that's out to get you. So mm. for example, um, if you are if you are experiencing a frank paranoid delusion, you might believe that the FBI is out to get you, but you wouldn't it wouldn't be the CIA as well. It would be quite specific to a group of actors that correspond to some real group in the world that you that exists. Mm. Um, and 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 so Again, we think that's also likely to be part of this kind what we call or what Pascal Boyer actually is called the coalitional psychology, which recognizes the presence of groups in the world, recognizes that groups, individuals and in groups behave in coordinated ways to achieve goals. goals. Yeah. And that sometimes you might be, you, you know, you might be the target of some of those goals, right? And mm -hmm. and so it's not paranoia isn't just this general tendency to think that everyone's out to get you. It's much more nuanced than that and and, and much more um, specific about yeah. who it is that you think is basically out mm. to get you. So once you've you know got this psychology that essentially is you know exaggerating or potentially exaggerating threats out there mm -hmm. in the world. Is it possible for that to actually get hijacked by others in order to manipulate you? Or is it not so much a, a vulnerability? Or Isn't that basically like the world today? <laughs> like sort of the rise of uh, populism. And I mean, I guess you can, if, if that's how, if, if our psychology works like that, if our psychology is sensitive to threat and to the, possibility that someone will harm you and intend to harm you of course you can hijack that kind of system by you we hijack it in the lab i mean 
we hijack that system by exposing people to social threat in the lab and we make them become more paranoid in real time. So if we can do that with a very simple manipulation where really the kind of social threat we're exposing people to is pretty mild, I think that there is vast potential to hijack those mm. systems in in with more realistic kinds of social threat in the real world. Like what kind of examples do you think? Well, oh, I don't know. Like, um, you know, it's hard to say this is just very much like hand wavy, but anything which basically uh, reminds people or suggests to people that there is a, a group of agents that is that has the aims, coordinated aims and goals that are to harm them. I mean, you know, we're we're, we're like a super groupish species, right? And we yeah. have one of the features of being a, a human and having evolved in these social groups is not just intense cooperation and pro-sociality, but it's also our evolutionary history is really also a history of intergroup conflict and, and inter-coalition conflict within groups as well. And so anything you do that reminds people of that or suggests that that is more, that that is happening or, or is possible, I think mm. would tap into this capacity for paranoid thinking hmm. so like you know news stories about you know outgroup people who people see as not part of their group doing things that might be threatening or exaggerated stories about things like that is that kind of what what you're thinking yeah about? i think yeah. so i think that um yeah i think those things have a potential to tap into paranoid thinking for sure and it's actually one of the other things we've found that is um, has been reported in the literature before, actually, is that to, to some extent, your um, political ideology and your proneness to paranoia are weakly, but related. They are. It's a weak relationship, but there is a relationship. And so um, what we found in our study when we asked people to tell us their political kind of leaning between being more more liberal versus more conservative is that there's a weak association between a, being a more conservative thinker and being also more prone to paranoid thinking in general right mm. so um and the other thing we found that is interesting as well about again this should, ought to be replicated really before we really take it seriously because it wasn't a finding we anticipated but um, we also found that people's position on the social ladder also affected their proneness to paranoid thinking, but not in the way that we had actually envisaged. So in the epidemiological studies, what has been found frequently is that people who are low status or who um, live in poverty or um, otherwise experience social threat in their day-to-day -day lives like for example they're part of a marginalized ethnic minority group or all these things are risk factors for being prone to psychosis and to paranoia by extension yeah. so we expected that we would find that people telling us they're on this bottom rung of the ladder would also be like the most paranoid people in our sample so we did find that but we also found this other effect which is the people who told us they were at the top of the social ladder they're rung nine and rung ten all were like the most paranoid people in our entire sample really yeah so it's quite interesting because this is what vaughn kind of called the paranoia of the elite and mm -hmm. I, I mean probably in certain individuals spring to mind but um 
it's also when you actually look at the date the literature from more broadly at the literature in humans and in non-human primates there is this general finding often that being in a position of dominance is actually can be associated with higher stress can be quite a stressful right. place to be if there's an unstable hierarchy right yeah. so being at the top of the pile isn't necessarily always the best place to be if there's other individuals who are jostling beneath you to try and get to that position right. that you're in right so well and if you're at yeah. the top and you're in a social structure where there is jostling for that position then it makes sense to be paranoid that others mm. might be meaning you harm because or to be aware of the possibility yeah. at least. yeah so i mean that in a way we didn't anticipate this finding but in hindsight it also when we then looked more broadly we saw well maybe we should really have expected this because there was all these data from humans and also from non-human primates that that do suggest that you know this top rank position is not always the easiest place to be for individuals and so i think there's some that it's I, I think it's really interesting to look like to basically look at what what features of your social world as a human might render you more or less prone to paranoid thinking and then how can we understand that in terms of a, uh, an evolved like if we think of paranoia as part of an evolved psychology for dealing with the kinds of social threats that you might face in your that we ancestrally and currently right. face in our social worlds it can i think it can be more illuminating than just thinking of paranoia as um, a pathological symptom of a mental disorder sure that makes sense so um just i'm gonna ask you to speculate here because i'm i don't think that there is any work actually on this but do you think that there might actually be an evolved set of sort of you know, mechanisms for also hijacking someone else's paranoid psychology? Like to, you know, use the fact that you can like get someone worried or paranoid about something to manipulate them to do what you want them to do? Um, yeah. I don't know how I'm trying to think how we would tap into that kind of thing in the lab, but my guess would be that that we're a species that has the ability to loosely mind read, right? So mm -hmm. we those kinds of socio-cognitive abilities are part of the remit of a human brain, and we can do those things. We can make inferences about what people believe, what they uh maybe even what they fear and things like that so i, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility mm -hmm. that you could try to make an individual more paranoid yeah. for some purpose that yeah. suited you you know we had a episode in um season one with mm -hmm. mark flynn where we talked about social stress mm -hmm. and the idea of like witchcraft and he had this a really interesting way of, of thinking about it and talking about it where he said that essentially what happens in, in witchcraft in the field and Dominica where he works is that people are essentially manipulating the stress system of others in order to kind of, you know, get them into this state where they're like, they're, bodies are literally, you know, in this stress state where they're more vulnerable to disease. And mm -hmm. they, you know, I think it kind of relates to this, this, this paranoia thing. It's like, you know, if you can stress somebody out strategically, either directly, or maybe by influencing others to treat somebody differently. Well, that's, well, I mean, again, I, I think 
I think this is probably more just repeating what I said already in some ways, but definitely those kinds of, I mean, we even thought about witchcraft to some extent, witchcraft accusations as, as one of the sort of things that can happen to you in your social world that could be uh, a precursor to paranoid kind of thinking and you know which we're now in the west you kind of don't you don't really think about witches and witchcraft accusations so much but in in a lot of the world it's still really common for people to be targeted with those kinds of accusations and then singled out and the consequences of being called a witch can be really bad in some you know yeah. you can be uh, you know maybe you get isolated from the group you don't your net your social network becomes smaller people don't want to interact with you as much or you know some places also you might be killed as well yeah. right so and i mean and we don't have witches in the west really but there are bitches yeah. and right and if someone says that person's a bitch yeah and then that spreads that's i think we still have the yeah. same thing we, we don't call it a witchcraft accusation but we for sure have like stigmatization and scapegoating and all these things yeah. are very much alive and well in yeah. our in even in you know the western industrialized world and um i think that as a human because the chance that you can be the target of those accusations is to some extent unpredictable and sporadic mm-hmm. Um, and you the, have to be constantly aware of the possibility that people are maneuvering to right. try to, you know, to harm you socially or physically. It's not just physical harm. It can also be social harm, yeah, right? It can right. be damaging you in many ways. Right. So the consequences can be very serious. Yeah. So you want the system to be sensitive enough to pick up on yeah. the possibility and mm-hmm. you know, try to respond in a way that makes sense or to avoid the yeah. possibility. Yeah. One of the other um, interesting things with respect to paranoia is that um, so there are a whole ho- there are a whole load of social and environmental things that render you more prone to paranoid thinking. So we've discussed some of those already. Um, things like you know being low status, having a small social network, um, being a marginalised ethnic minority, living in poverty. The, all these kind of socio social kind of threat in your environment is yeah. predictive of uh, it, it can be associated with a higher tendency towards paranoid thinking one really interesting finding is that um if, if you're part of a marginalized ethnic group uh, the the risk that that puts you at for increased paranoid thinking can be buffered to some extent if you then live at a higher density with people like you with that's people interesting. Of your, so that's something called the ethnic density effect huh. that you you know, in an epidemiological study would be kind of treated as a sort of puzzling anomaly, but from an evolutionary perspective makes a lot of sense because even if you are part of a marginalized group, um, maybe it's less threatening to to live in, you know, in a majority rather than being living as a as just a minority in that in That's that particular environment. Um so there's all these social economic things that predispose to paranoia, but all but then there's also a whole load of things that are related to, for example, if you have a brain injury or if you um, have sleep deprivation or if you use or abuse recreational drugs or a whole and lots of things you can do that can impair or damage the way your brain mm. works. Do all of those also things. predisposed to paranoia, increase, yeah. right? So hmm. one of the really interesting questions, actually, which you asked before is to what extent is it is paranoia really adaptive? And one of the one of the sort of 
a very skeptical, uh, sorry, not skeptical, a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, speculative yeah. kind of um, hypothesis is that maybe a brain that if if you're damaged in any way and your if your brain is impaired and it's normal functioning in some way if you you have had a physical brain injury or a or some kind of injury to the brain or impairment or um or any of these things that can sort of impair the way your brain works it could be that the default setting of being more paranoid is actually a pretty good thing to do because you are more vulnerable to exploitation in those hmm. situations as well and that's something that i think with a lot of the clinical stuff hasn't really been sort of explored in that that's much interesting. detail but and also you know if you've been harmed right and then it kind of makes sense almost that the default setting should be to upregulate the mm. paranoia because some harm has happened. Yeah. But even if it's just, yeah, I mean, so even if it's just a, a, you know, it results, the harm results from not a social harm, right? It results from taking recreational yeah. drugs or it results from you smashed your head on something or, you know, the kind of one, the interesting pattern in a way is why is the, why is the, direction of travel always towards being more paranoid yeah. rather than being more right. trusting, right? Like that that paranoia is basically a symptom of loads of things that can go wrong with your brain. So it's not only, a, it can happen for sure in response to these social and environmental things that we see in the epidemiological studies, but it also happens in response to a lot of things that are not related to directly to your social environment. And that- That's really yeah. interesting. I mean, it kind of suggests that not being paranoid is something that requires like that your brain is doing a bunch of sort of complex regulatory stuff on the information that you're taking in to keep it from triggering paranoia in it, a way right that's yeah, one maybe, potential yeah, explanation maybe, for what's maybe, going on yeah or maybe yeah i mean i think that with there's a lot we don't know right yeah yeah that's cool so uh one question i always ask it towards the end of the podcast is what is your sort of version of the zombie apocalypse, which is like everyone being zombified by paranoia. So, you know, if, if you take what you know about the psychology of paranoia and you like ramp that up, mm -hmm. so it's like way more intense and then you have the, you know, possibility of that getting, Hijacked. Out, out into the world. Yeah. Like, you know, if everyone was just ramped up in terms of their paranoia, like what is the apocalypse oh, of that? I don't think that's the world we want to live in. I mean, I, well, I, I mean, human interaction is pre like all of what it means to be human and to all the good stuff about being a human is predicated on trust, right? Like mm. everything we do, every when you travel to work on the train when you buy coffee from the coffee shop when you i don't know you go in your office and do your work and all these things everything you do is predicated on trust and trust in people you know and trust in people that you don't know right and it, if we have everyone wandering around in the zombie apocalypse with these heightened perceptions that other people are out to get them rather than are trustworthy yeah I think a lot of these good things about the good features of society will be gone, right? Then mm. 
I don't know how long I live in that world. Right. So if we're just all extra paranoid, then we can't actually take advantage of the benefits of there'll being be no, social. Well, yeah. I mean, trade. There'll be no trade. There'll be no social exchange. There'll be no. Uh, you know, it will just be you and your family probably. But I mean, assuming but you, you might trust your family, paranoid yeah. about them well, too, yeah, right? And I think it's. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in even though obviously that's a very exaggerated vision of the world, I think we, I do feel like in some ways we are we're moving towards a, a society that is increasingly like that. Mm. Um, um, again, like with these kinds of concerns being stoked by politicians and other people who have an interest in us being feeling threatened or feeling vulnerable and and so yeah I mean the zombie apocalypse obviously is sort of hopefully an unrealistic vision but I also think we are we're maybe a bit closer to that than we would like to Mm. believe also in some ways. Hmm. So what are things that you know we can all do to keep that sort of dark vision of the future from coming about are there takeaways from how to prevent paranoid thinking I mean again I don't know if there's a good it's not necessarily good to tell people to I mean under this worldview that paranoia has a function in in your in real in the real world I wouldn't necessarily advocate for telling people to just become less paranoid like so paranoia Mm -hmm. can be good in certain situations Right. right um I think that say if you're if you wanted to think about things like interventions that could help people who are at the more paranoid end of the spectrum to be to feel less Mm -hmm. paranoid than they do in sort of neutral social interactions i think things like building up support networks building a social circle um having basically more supportive interactions in everyday life are the kinds of things that then can increase the perception of social Mm -hmm. support and accordingly decrease the tendency Mm -hmm. towards paranoid thinking so hanging out with your friends try you know be nice to people if you think they haven't got as many friends those kinds of things probably are quite Mm -hmm. helpful and easy to do and will probably make your life better in general anyway right yeah Mm. and then how about in terms of sort of reducing your vulnerability to being hijacked by you know paranoid information that might be, you know, coming at you that not, that isn't necessarily um, information that's serving your interests to be responding Mm -hmm. to? I think that's what Dan Sperber would call epistemic vigilance. So paying attention, not just to um, information that comes to you from other people, but also the potential um, goals of that individual who is giving the information. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I feel like it's a sim- that's kind of a similar question to the how do you help people to be less paranoid? That mm-hmm. is sort of how do you how do you help yourself to not be hijacked by people who who would who would like to do that? I think it's just a tightrope, uh-huh. a balancing act, right? And like you don't want to. You that's what we're all doing every day, isn't it? We're all we're all trying to walk a, a tightrope of 
trusting people who are trustworthy, but weeding out the people that are not trustworthy. And sometimes we're going to get that right. And sometimes we're going to get it wrong, but mm -hmm. going completely one in one direction or the other direction is probably not going to be the right thing yeah. to do. Right. Yeah. But we get a lot of our information now, not necessarily from sort of people who we know and trust, but from, you know, news sources that, you know, maybe there's a, an author for the story, but it's not mm -hmm. like, it's someone, your neighbor telling you something and you know, oh, your neighbor sometimes exaggerates or whatever. It's, uh, you know, it, it's a different way of kind of getting information yeah. about the world. And how, have we, like, how do we stop ourselves from believing fake news kind of <laughs> question? I don't know. I think it's really difficult, right? Like we get, we get the news that, that we, that, we get fed basically mm -hmm. so i think you just have to be vigilant to the fact that not you have to bear in mind that not everything you um that people say or do or the signals people send might might not always be mm -hmm. truthful in that yeah. sense and i mean the irony is that you know the system that, that we have it sounds like it's it's designed it's there to protect us from harm but then if someone is trying to you know hijack us and they tell us something that you know we then perceive as harmful like it it it, it could end up actually damaging us that we're attending to this mm -hmm. information that we see as threatening mm -hmm. so it's this sort of evolutionary irony almost that yeah. you have this mm -hmm. vulnerability because of a system that's there ideally to protect you from harm mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so i don't know are we fucked or <laughs> I don't know. I think most, I think pretty much like most, I think we, I think most people, I'd be surprised if we were systematically fucked. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we're, I, I think mo for most people, most of the time, things tend to work and pretty well. Um, yes, the, yes, some of those systems are vulnerable to like novel methods of sort of exploitation that mm -hmm. maybe we haven't really had an evolutionary history of dealing with um but but by and large most when you look in the general population for example most people the vast majority of people fall in the category of being not at all paranoid and then it's a um a half normal distribution so a long tail mm. of like increasingly paranoid thinking with a small minority of people who are extremely paranoid thinking so most people most of the time are not very paranoid and are probably willing to believe that other people have benign rather than harmful intentions towards them but that there are some situations and some people that kind of that that where paranoid thinking is more readily evoked and whether that where you then draw the line between that being something which is still part of a normally functioning human psychology and where that tips over into being something that is actually pathological maladaptive is a very it's an open question and actually um super difficult to really clearly define that i think yeah like where would you say is the line between this is adaptive versus this is clearly not yeah and those are the open questions basically those yeah. are the open things we don't know that we can maybe start to find out well it seems like there's a lot of exciting opportunities for more work in this area to really understand the psychology and how it evolved and mm -hmm. maybe even learn some things that will help us you know, prevent the 
paranoid zombie apocalypse. Yeah, <laughs> let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Nicola, for sharing your brains with us this episode. Thanks, Athena. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you don't want to fall in love, you better tell me right now. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. Thank you to the Department of Psychology, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative, and the President's Office at ASU, the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics, and all of the brains that help make this podcast, including Tal Ram, who does our sound, Neil Smith, our amazing illustrator, Lemmy, the creator of our song, Psychological, and the Z team, uh, an amazing group of graduate students and undergraduates who help to transcribe all of our episodes and do all sorts of other things related to making the podcast happen. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're Zombified Pod and we're Zombified Podcast on Facebook. Our website is zombified.org. And on our website, you can buy our merchandise. We have awesome t-shirts with our floating head and stickers also with the floating head and if you want to support us in a more long-term way you can become a patron on patreon and for just one dollar a month you will help to make zombified happen and help keep us ad-free and totally educational which is how we want to stay all right, at the end of every episode, I offer a little something. And today I'm thinking that for me, the, the biggest connection to my work from what Nicola was talking about today really comes from, I think there's an important connection between paranoia and cooperation cheating. So a lot of my work looks at the evolution of cooperation and what makes cooperation stable, across systems, everything from how humans interact to how cells interact. Um, but I think that the paranoia angle is really interesting because essentially not being paranoid requires that you have trust, right? And in a way, being paranoid is about having a fear that you'll be cheated or you could say zombified by others who might be sort of pretending to have your interests at heart, um, or maybe they're just pretending to be neutral, um, but they actually have bad intentions towards you. And 
to me, this is really interesting because it's, it's essentially an information processing problem that we're all of us face. Um, so, you know, what cues tell us that somebody has aligned interests with us? What cues tell us that they have conflicting interests with us? And then it becomes a really complicated game theoretic issue, right? Because if they actually are trying to exploit us, then they may be trying to not look like they're exploiting us. And that means that cheaters can presumably cheat more effectively if they're able to go undetected. So maybe the paranoia system kind of makes sense in that game theoretic perspective. It, it may be that paranoia helps us to be suspicious when somebody is interacting with us who might not be showing obvious signs of trying to manipulate us, but there's some other cues that sort of hint that that might be what's going on. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you.